1: Thanks for joining us for today's Political Rewind. We're uh, pleased to have you uh, listening. Um, You know, we're going to divert just a little bit from the news of the day because we know that you really have enjoyed in the past when we tried to put the news in historical context. And that's exactly what we want to do around impeachment today, is talk about it as an example of extreme partisanship it, it act, in action right now. But talk about how partisanship has developed over the decades. And we'll look at some key moments in how partisanship really was propelled forward. Uh, Tamar Hallerman is with us. She is the Washington correspondent, of course, for the AJC, right here in our studio, not on the telephone, not on that little interesting microphone that you bought to plug into your laptop. You're here.
0: It happens, once in a blue moon.
1: Really glad you are. <laughs> and as long as we're talking to you, would you like to share your big announcement with yeah. our listeners?
0: I'm moving to Atlanta yeah. after 12 years in D.C. and four as the AJC's Washington correspondent, taking right. a, a new role with the paper. We're going to hire a new Washington correspondent mm-hmm. who I'll introduce to you guys soon. Good. In the meantime, taking a new kind of interdisciplinary role at the paper, hoping to do more in-depth stuff, looking at policy, looking at gender, looking at the culture wars, urban-rural divide. What a great
1: thing for you to get to do. So like six Republican members of the House from Texas, you too are abandoning Washington. <laughs> it's
0: time. All right.
1: We're also joined by Dr. Joe Crispino, uh, who is the Jimmy Carter Professor of American History at Emory University. Joe, you've been on the show before, and when you do come in and help put things in historical context, our listeners always appreciate it. I also in introducing you always like to say, you are the author of the biography of Atticus Finch.
2: That's right. It's called Atticus Finch, the biography, Harper Lee, Her Father, and the Making of American Icon.
1: Now, we've done a show on it, and in fact, you can, if you go on the the Two Way Street website, actually, uh, you can find that uh, interview that uh, Joe and I did back when the book was first published. But essentially, what you did with that book is to incorporate... The differences that Harper Lee wrote into uh, her first, you know, uh, the first book, the book in which Atticus Finch became a great hero. uh, And then go Set a Watchman, where suddenly we found him to be a very different kind of
2: character. Yeah, and To Kill a Mockingbird, he is the noble defender, the downtrodden, the great hero, one of the great heroes of American literature. And then go Set a Watchman, this novel that was discovered and published in 2015. He's exactly what you think. You know, a seventy-year-old arthritic white man would be like in <laughs> South Alabama in the mid-fifties, right? Just, so, you know, all those people who had named their kids Atticus or their dog Atticus, you know, <laughs> up in arms, and you know, this uses history and literary, uh, literary history, political history to make sense of all that. It's a it's a terrific book. Um,
1: all right, let's talk uh, tomorrow. Just. For, you know, for a moment, let me point out uh, the impeachment news of the day. George P. Kent, the deputy assistant secretary of state who's in charge of Ukraine policy, is up on Capitol Hill today testifying behind closed doors about whatever he knows. About the Ukraine uh, scandal, which I think it's safe to say uh, is is a a, a fair word to use in talking about it, and he becomes yet another member of the administration, like Fiona Hill yesterday, who have decided that despite the administration, the White House uh, efforts to stop anyone from the administration from testifying, decided. They've got to come forward and speak. So I wonder, Tamar, I know that Congress is just getting back in session today. You're down here. So you haven't talked to him today, any of the Georgia members. But if administration officials are starting to break ranks, do we have any reason to think that the Republicans who have been so, so staunch in their defense of the president are going to start doing the same?
0: not at the moment based on what we've seen so far and if anything from from the members who have been vocal and let's put people into two categories all of the republicans first of all have said right now they don't see enough for any sort of impeachable offense but you have the folks who would kind of rather not talk about it and keep their distance and you have the folks who really have rallied to the president's defense and You know, the ones who have been vocal about it have become more vocal over the last two weeks when they were back in their districts. We especially saw Jody Heiss, arguably the most conservative member of the delegation, a member of the Freedom Caucus allied with Jim Jordan, uh, really kind of start going after Adam Schiff, the, the chairman in charge of the Intelligence Committee.
1: Uh, but the others, you know, they all know you, obviously. They recognize you when you're down the hall. Are they turning around and walking the other way when they see you down there? Are they avoiding you?
0: No, if anything. And, and there are some exceptions. It seems like Johnny Isaacson doesn't, would rather talk about other things. Yeah. He wants to start doing legislation and, and that sort of thing. But the rest really want to show that. That despite what they've seen so far, that they aren't buying it, and none of them are, are on the intelligence committee first of all, so none of them are getting to sit in the, in these closed door meetings. But people like Doug Collins, the top Republican on the Judiciary Committee, potential candidate for uh, for U.S. Senate, if anything, you see him continue to go on cable news and, and talk about how he doesn't see anything wrong.
1: But but um, and Joe, you're welcome to weigh in on this sure. too. But what what is fascinating about Doug Collins is when when uh, When it was the Judiciary Committee that was the center of activity, when Nadler was running the hearings, uh, Collins had a great platform to speak out strongly against what Democrats were doing. But now that things have shifted to intelligence, Collins is—he can still go on the cable shows, but he's sidelined in terms of— being an active participant in the committee meetings.
0: Exactly. And there's a real question of whether it'll come back to the Judiciary Committee after all of this. In theory, they have jurisdiction over impeachment matters, but it seems like Pelosi's really shifted the venue. You can argue whether that's a good or a bad thing for Doug Collins as he's trying to get this Senate appointment. On the one hand, he wants the president to be on his side, to see him on cable news, think he's doing a good job. At the same time, he can kind of turn and start focusing on his own messaging, whatever he wants, and and trying to convince Kemp and the president to try and appoint him. Yeah.
1: I've said this on the show before, Joe, and you're welcome to weigh in if you'd like to. I... Nadler, I I, I think because of some of the real problems he had in keeping control over the Judiciary Committee, the Corey Lewandowski hearing being a a particular example of how they were just run roughshod by Lewandowski, it's not surprising that Nancy Pelosi decided when they really started getting serious about impeachment, she'd shift the focus to an Adam Schiff, former prosecutor, guy whose discipline seems to know how to run things. Uh, you know, he's made some stupid mistakes. We've talked about those. He's talking in gangster language about how Trump dealt with a phone call with Zelensky. But he does seem to be a guy that Pelosi would rather invest trust in right now.
2: Yeah, Schiff seems to be really well prepared to deal with these hearings. And he also, you know, has an active uh, presence on on social media. than any kind of goes toe-to-toe with the president which seems to be, you know, one of the few Democrats who are willing or able to do that. So, yeah, it does seem like a calculated move on Pelosi's part.
1: All right. So let's shift over to this conversation about um, how impeachment represents, I I think it's safe to say, one of the most extreme examples you could have of partisanship. If we go back just in recent past history, Joe, There was a move to impeach George W. Bush. These things didn't get terribly far, but they were in the atmosphere. They were in the ether. People were talking about him, that George W. Bush, for any number of reasons, some Democrats felt should be impeached, some liberals, uh, leaders out in in the communities around the country thought he should be impeached, partly over Iraq, Uh, the weapons of mass destruction, which didn't turn up. Then there was a move to impeach President Obama. Again, not a major effort, but there was a lot of talk about Obama ought to be impeached um, for a variety of issues there as well. So it's not as if impeachment hasn't been out there as a part of the conversation. And of course, it's been driven by partisan politics through these last three administrations.
2: Sure. Yeah. When people uh, sometimes talk to me about partisanship today, hyper-partisanship today, and they They say, you know, well, has it ever been this? Aren't we in a unique moment? Has it ever been this bad? And, of course, I always say, yeah, it's been worse. There was that war back in the 19th century and all. So we have seen this before, uh, and it has been worse than we have it now. Yet it is true that if you look over the last... Uh, really over the last 25 years. But certainly, you know, you can date it back to the middle of the 20th century. There has been a, a notable rise. And this is driven by a variety of factors, you know, social changes, technological changes, political changes, you know, and, and individuals, particular individuals have played important roles, too.
1: I want to go back in history and look at some of the moments um, that that we're going to talk about. But before I do, tomorrow, what when you hear the vitriol with which Republicans are talking about, Democrats, Democrats, about Republicans on the Hill these days, I mean, this is a relatively small club, the House of Representatives, and certainly the Senate, uh, 100 uh, men and women. I, it, it, are, they, are they able to talk to each other when the cameras aren't rolling? Or has this partisanship become even more... Uh, difficult for them to deal with in interpersonal relationships.
0: It's become more difficult, and you see a real generational difference. You see folks who've been in the chamber for maybe, ch- in, especially in the Senate, because you really do, it's designed that you need to get consensus across the aisle. That's what the filibuster kind of is designed to help do. You see the older folks who've been around a long time who understand, okay, I'm going to have to give a little to get a little on these. And you get these these newer folks who have come up in these much more partisan times where they, they don't realize Oh, wait, that's really important. And it, sometimes it takes a while to, to get there for for a lot of them. What also is so striking is is you forget there are all these rules in, in place to, to keep decorum. So that's what's so jarring sometimes is they still are, are required to talk, you know, my dear friend from so-and-so. And, <laughs> but at the same time, you can tell behind the scenes there's such backstabbing. Yeah, yeah. It's... Yeah, it's a lot. All right, let's go. You know, wait,
2: that's, go ahead. That's interesting, and and that's a change. I and mean, when we're talking about the the many changes that feed partisanship, it's just you know if you go back to the nineteen fifties, sixties, and seventies. Representatives used to move to D.C. with their families, and that and and families knew each other, and you had you know wives who, who were friends with wives across political divisions, and that that has all changed, you know, within the last twenty years. That
1: is so important. Cokie Roberts and I had sure. a big conversation about that not long ago, and of course she comes out of one of the most significant Democratic political families in in uh, American government, and she talks used to talk about that how her parents were. Both up. Lindy Boggs, Hale Boggs, the majority leader uh, in the House, uh, her, her mom who took his seat when he was tragically killed in a, in a crash, they all lived in Washington. And as you say, they all socialized with each other across party lines. And things are entirely different now.
0: And that was a big change we saw under Newt Gingrich when he was Speaker, is one of the things he said is. When you're in Washington, you're only mingling with the elite. You're out of touch with your district. So he encouraged everyone to fly back home at the end of every week. So now on Capitol Hill, they only really work you know, when members of Congress are on the ground, it's only about three and a half days Yeah, they week.
1: maybe come in from mm-hmm. Monday night.
0: Monday night, they usually are gone. Thursday,
1: they don't want to vote on Friday, right?
0: Exactly. And so people are immediately rushing home to their districts, rushing home to their corners, and they aren't getting to know people from the other side. You know, even when they are on Capitol Hill, they're fundraising, they're, they're doing social things only with their side of the aisle. So unless they end up going on a think tank-sponsored trip abroad or a committee hearing, they, they really aren't ever getting to spend quality time with the other side.
1: So let's go back in time, Joe, mm-hmm. um, and begin talking about how things started to change. One of the things that you've pointed out uh, is that one of the things that kept, that allowed for um, more uh, uh, collegial conversation and an ability for members of Congress to, to uh, resolve issues working together is that there was a time when the parties themselves, each party might represent a fairly broad spectrum of political thought. So you had Republicans.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So uh, as late as the mid mid 20th century, 1950s, 1960s, you know, you had conservative Democrats and you had liberal Republicans. And this is because the parties evolved out of the 19th century that were based on kind of regional coalitions that date back, you know, in some cases to the early to the early Republic. But what happens beginning in the middle of the 20th century is both parties begin there are activists within both parties who are trying to more uh, you know, to 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 move to a more British model where there's a Conservative Party and a Liberal Party. Now, argue in in scholars debate who was the first who's you know who's responsible for this. In some ways, you could debate you could date this to the 1930s, when Franklin Roosevelt has you know liberal uh, you know kitchen cabinet who wants to move the party more discernibly to the left. And so, you, and famously in 1938, you know FDR. Uh, controversially ca- campaigns against Democratic senators yeah. in the Democratic primary. Here in Georgia, he campaigned, you know, on when he was down uh, in Georgia for one of his, you know, one of his, at the little White House. He campaigns against Walter George. He tries to get some unseated. does the same thing against Cotton Ed Smith in South Carolina, both of whom were very staunch conservative Democrats who had been opponents of of a lot of the New Deal legislation.
1: And you can take that back. You said it a, a moment ago. The conservative Southern Democrats, uh, like a Walter George, as you said, you can trace that back to 19th century roots when, when there were geopolitical uh, 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 coalitions you you pointed out in a lecture that uh the Midwest had uh, uh business leaders uh industrialists right. uh and others in the north who tended to be republicans in those days. The South had a ag- agrarian society uh farmers rural people who in those days were but the, could Democrats be conservative Democrats?
2: Yeah, yeah, and that, that was one of the big, you know, kind of political economic di- divisions within the country, kind of industrializing Midwest and Northeast versus the rural uh, agricultural-based South and West. And that that was kind of one of the division's main rivalries within Democratic politics.
1: So, Tamar, um, great examples of the kind of uh, ideological diversity you might have found in each party um, – You'd have a Nelson Rockefeller, who many today would be considered a liberal Democrat. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, he was a, in, in many ways a very liberal Republican. Um, and then on the other hand, you had, a, a, who's a great example of a much more conservative Republican from back in those? Robert Tapp. Okay, Robert Tapp. Perfect. Yeah. All right. On the Democratic side, you had a Richard Russell here in Georgia. Very conservative Democrat, a Harry bird in West Virginia. Um, but then you also had more liberal Democrats back in the day as yeah, well. Hubert Humphrey. We don't see that at all today, do we? Tomorrow,
0: not nearly as much. Um, and and in the Senate, anytime you see somebody closer to the center, those are the people being so heavily targeted in in primaries. Just talk to Susan Collins, talk to somebody like Joe Manchin, to took You know, people from from both parties. You know, who are being targeted by, you know, people of their, you know, in their own base getting primaried.
2: Yeah, yeah. One of the, I was just to fill, fill out the thought on, you know, some, some people would, would date it to the Democrats in the 30s, but I think a real turning point on the right and for Republicans is the election of Dwight Eisenhower in 1952, because that's the first time you've got a Republican in four presidential election cycles. And there are a lot of people like... Bob Taft from Ohio who say you know we want to roll back the new deal you know that we never were for it it's it's socialism we want to roll it back and Eisenhower doesn't do that Eisenhower makes his peace with the new deal and he you know, advances what he calls a kind of modern republicanism. And this really creates this vacuum that, that you begin to see the rise of what is the modern conservative movement. And it's driven as much by kind of thought leaders as it is by politicians themselves. You have the founding of the, of the National Review in 1955, which becomes the kind of the voice of the modern conservative movement. And William F. Buckley, of course, plays a huge role in that.
1: Just put it, what you said in context, you had four terms of FDI. Obviously, yeah. the New Deal, liberal politics, followed by Harry Truman, um, who came, who was there until Dwight Eisenhower. So when you say that Eisenhower was the first Republican to be on a ticket, that that really is the context in which we put that. Absolutely. And so, where in there? Does the John Birch Society was born in the fifties as well, yes? Am I yes, right about yes. that? Yes.
2: The John Birch Society was born in the late fifties. Oh, okay. Out of a kind of a popular anti communism, you know. And of course the Birch the John Birch Society is what the birther movement is kind of you know, you know, took its name from, or at least was named from. By, by journalists, so yeah, and that was a that was a an interesting moment within the history of modern conservatism, because with the rise of the Birchers, you have a more established conservative movement with people like Buckley who were very concerned about kind of these these uh, these folks on the far right who were calling Earl Warren a you know communist yeah. and you are calling uh, former do, Supreme Court. Yeah, I, I, and,
1: Chief yeah, Justice, the, the Chief go Justice ahead. Of the
2: Supreme Court and putting up, you know, ro- you know, uh, billboards along roadsides all across the country. You know that Earl Warren is a communist, and that and that you know Dwight Eisenhower may not be a communist, but he's a he's a dupe. He's a communist dupe. So this this kind of crazy talk was the kind of thing that more mainstream conservatives, you know, wanted to tamp down uh, and had to get control of. And so Buckley and others at the, at the National Review play an important role in, in, in trying to do that.
1: Yeah, I think, Tamara, if and, and I realize that this was so far before you were even born that this is ancient history. Well, for Crispino, too, I should say. Yes, I was not alive but, then either, thank you. But, so I'm the only one to remember. But I think that William F. Buckley... Buckley would roll in his grave right now if he heard Crispino talking about Buckley and the nation in the same terms that he's talking about birthers. the John Birch Society yeah. and birthers. And, and the reason I point that out is that Buckley represents, you know, the Birch Society, uh, both of these were influences on the Republican Party and on the partisanship that started growing. So that's why I mentioned this. Um. Buckley was the intellectual side of conservatism. Buckley was the guy who m- tried to be make intellectual points about the value of conservative thought, whereas the Birch Society was basically an organization of, of haters who were uh, looking to undermine uh, anything they saw as vaguely liberal.
0: And you're seeing that, that push and pull still in the Republican Party today and, and kind of who's controlling the messaging. You're seeing it now when the Weekly Standard recently... Shut down. They were they yeah. were pretty. I don't know if never Trump is the word, but they were skeptical of Trump. And now you know you saw for a while the the rise of Breitbart News, a little more, little more, a lot more populist and kind of fully behind the president. Um, and the National Review is still around, but I don't know if you can put that into more context, Professor. But yeah, yeah. Well,
2: I mean, one of the things I want to push back a little bit on uh, the, your characterization of Buckley. You
1: think Buckley was not the intellectual well, I'm
2: painting him no, as? No, no. Buckley became you know this this kind of uh... eminent greece on the on the right you know And and he kind of you know became a much more kind of uh, moderating figure. But let's remember, Buckley writes God and Yale. That's that's the book. He'd gone to Yale and talks about all the liberal professors at Yale. And then he writes a book explicitly defending Joseph McCarthy. You know he writes that's I mean he's he's defending Joe McCarthy. Then he goes on to found National Review. And when he founds National Review, who's writing for the National Review? A lot of Southern segregationist Democrats. Richard Russell writes for the National Review early on. He's explicitly defending uh, segregation. Uh, and and uh, and the exclusion of, of African American voters during the 1957 debates over the over the uh, civil rights bill so you know Buckley you know like all of these people people evolve over time and become different things and that's what historians are trying to do to remember that you know Buckley was pretty far there out there when he first made I, his you, start thank
1: you I, I'm really glad you made that point because I guess what probably I should have said is that Buckley would have styled himself yes. as the intellectual of the right, whether or not, I mean, we can go back, and in fact, we ought to post a link, if we can, to this for our, our listeners. We You can go back and look at the the famous, infamous Gore Vidal, yeah. William F. Buckley debate on Crossfire, whatever it was in those days. And it's a great example of what you're talking about, the liberal Vidal uh, doing battle with the conservative Buckley, who, who does show his true stripes, I think, in, in that debate. Let's do this. Let's take a break. And when we come back, let's talk about the enormous influence that Richard Nixon and the, and the attempt to impeach him and his ultimate resignation uh, as president had in creating a partisanship in the Republican Party that persists to this day. We'll be right back with more.
3: Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start, and by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org cars. And thanks.
4: Tonight in Ohio, 12 Democratic presidential hopefuls meet on one stage. Will the House impeachment inquiry into President Trump dominate the night? I'm Audie Cornish. Find out where the candidates stand. Who will shine and who will clash? The CNN New York Times Democratic presidential debate, available live on CNN or listen here from
0: NPR News. Join us tonight from 8 to 11 here on GPB and on gpbnews.org.
1: Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Uh, Joe Crispino, Emory University Professor of American uh, History, is with us, and Tamar Kellerman, uh, currently the Washington correspondent for AJC, but soon to be an Atlanta correspondent covering a multitude of policy issues and more. Fair way to say it? Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, l- let's keep talking about partisanship uh, and and how it developed and got to the point where it now feels completely out of control. Joe, it's it's interesting to look back on Richard Nixon, because I think if you don't really study, think about Nixon independent from the resignation the Watergate and all that stuff, it might be easy to overlook the fact that Richard Nixon was actually the last moderate Republican president that we've had in office. I mean, you could say Gerald Ford, maybe, but he was right. so short-lived. Right. He was part of the problem, not part of the solution.
2: Yeah, right? Absolutely. Those conservatives that I was talking about, you know, they were very skeptical of Richard Nixon. You know, Richard. Now, Richard Nixon got his start as a right-wing anti-communist. Right. You know, out of Southern California, and that's what you know. He was put on the ticket in '52. Was was Eisenhower's vice president for eight years. But say on a the signature issue of say civil rights in the 1950s and 60s, uh, he breaks a filibu- He breaks a a, a a tie in the voting over the '57 civil rights bill. He courts you know Martin Luther King. Uh, Junior when he's running for president in nineteen sixty and other African American voters. You know, and um, and he's seen as a as a kind of more moderate and, and, and so those conservatives in the party are skeptical of them. And one of the ways he wins them over is by him using increasingly, you know, language of law and order by 1966, 67, and 68, but he is—he's still not seen as a, uh, as a as a true conservative. And certainly, when he when he gets into the presidency, the way he opens up towards China, the way he conducts foreign policy with Henry Kissinger, it, uh, drives a lot of conservatives crazy. And so, yeah, there there was there were big rifts between kind of the conservative wing of the of the Republican Party and and Richard Nixon.
1: Before, I have not looked at our social media feeds yet today, tomorrow, but before I start looking and see everybody saying, how can you say those things about Richard Nixon? I'm not suggesting that because he was viewed in the party as a more moderate force, that he wasn't, in fact, a dark force as well, because his law and order campaigns, as you point out, some of his early history, uh, the famous race against Helen uh, Gagan Douglas in California, where he... uh, went after his Democratic opponent with just tooth and nail lies about who she was. So I'm not suggesting Nixon was some brave moderate, but he is in many ways he was much more moderate than much of the party in those in his presidency.
0: Yeah, and you look at studies over time about how far both parties have drifted to one side. There was a great Pew study we, we pulled up from 2016 that showed just how over time both sides have really kind of polarized and that's for a variety of reasons that I'm sure we'll we'll get We're into gonna later. Talk about them. Exactly. Uh,
2: well, uh, Watergate is one of them. And you know, and what's interesting about Watergate is Watergate is terrible for the Republican Party. You know, when Nixon resigns in August of 74, they lose huge numbers of seats in the midterm elections in '74, and of course, you know, many Republicans will say Jimmy Carter is elected in '76 exactly because of the fallout over Watergate. But Watergate is very good for conservatives within the Republican Party. That's the important because. difference. Well, because it affirms a certain narrative that conservatives have been run had been running on for years, which is that Washington is corrupt. Washington is full of you know uh, the establishment is corrupt and so this kind of outside this kind of anti Washington anti-government kind of message that is at the core one of the pillars of modern conservative politics gets confirmed in yeah. interesting ways through through um, through the Watergate scandal
1: okay so let's listen to just a little bit of Richard Nixon's resignation speech. Well, this is, yeah, this is the speech that he gives, I think it's August 9th, 1974, in which he says, the, the, the punchline is, tomorrow at noon, I will surrender the White House. Uh, and this is what he says at one point during this speech.
3: As we look to the future, the first essential is to begin healing the wounds of this nation, to put the bitterness and divisions of the recent past behind us and to rediscover those shared ideals that lie at the heart of our strength and unity as a great and as a free people. By taking this action I hope that I will have hastened the start of that process of healing which is so desperately needed in America. And to those who have not felt able to give me your support. Let me say, I leave with no bitterness toward those who oppose
1: me. Tamar, I find that fascinating. I mean, I suppose you could argue that once he left office, there was some kind of healing in the sense that people were no longer uh, bitterly fighting over whether Richard Nixon was a, was a criminal or not. Um, but his notion that we are somehow now going to... He, he hopes that we come together and learn how to work together. He has no bitterness towards his enemies. It's really fascinating to hear that, isn't it?
0: Exactly, and <laughs> kind of given the context of where we are today with our current yeah. occupant in the White House who is very different from all his predecessors in so many ways, but no apologies, never, never admit to any sort of wrongdoing. You would never hear those words today.
2: Well, but also, Joe... That didn't happen. <laughs> well, one one thing to, important to remember: it wasn't clear whether or not Nixon would be open for prosecution at this that's point, exactly right? Right. And it's only until Ford pardons him that that's taken off the table. Yes. And so that becomes a a real albatross for for Ford. But listening to that quote, my gosh, it's so it sounds so quaint almost. This idea that there are these shared values, that there are you know, it's a certain kind of comedy to uh, American. Political life that is necessary. I mean, it's you're you're right, Tom. I mean, it's hard to imagine a lot of people. And of course, the other thing that we've got to remember about the current uh, impeachment process and what happened with Nixon is that you know Nixon was impeached because Republican only because Republicans broke.
1: Yeah, that's you know, that's why I started the show by and, asking whether there might be a break in the ranks at any yeah, point. that's yeah. right.
2: But in in that, and we see no evidence of that happening. Uh, at this point in the process. So,
1: all right, so we know that in the aftermath of Nixon, the conservative, it it does strike me that a lot of the history of partisanship, and Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, because, you know, you were very generous in, in sharing with us Your notes from a lecture you gave on this, an awful lot of it has to do with Republican movement, uh, not quite as much with Democrats moving one way or the other, if I got that wrong.
2: Well, both parties have moved, but but Republicans have moved dramatically. Okay, I mean,
1: Democrats are entrenched also. It isn't as if they are now, you know, practicing what Nixon claims to have wanted to see, reaching out and comedy and all that. That's right. But it it is the movement of the Republican Party that really is fascinating
2: to track. What you see, and what's notable too about the uh, on the right, is the way that there are individuals who are kind of the forerunners of this kind of scorched earth, divisive political rhetoric, and we saw it in Newt Gingrich, but we also saw it uh, before. You know, in some ways, before Gingrich with with Pat Buchanan. There
1: you go. But let's okay. Let's go to uh, Newt Gingrich because okay. he's fascinating. Yeah. So. Um, So Nixon is gone. Ford has been in office. He's fatally wounded with the pardon of Nixon and Jimmy Carter wins election in 1976. By then, uh, Newt Gingrich, by 1978, Newt had tried and lost two bids for Congress. He finally won in November of 1978. But I want to read from and then get both of you to react to, I want to read a paragraph of a speech That Newt gave to the College of Republicans at the Holiday Inn at the Atlanta airport on June 24th, 1978, because, boy, Tamar, this really tells us something about the way in which the Republicans were moving to the right and would later be led by the man who was making these remarks. He said to the students, do you like the state of the Republican Party? Um, Do you do you think Bill Brock, who was a, a, a leader at the time, has done such a great job? Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, the only incumbent president since Hubert, Hubert Hoover to lose an election. They have done a terrible job, a pathetic job in my lifetime. Literally in my lifetime, I was born in 1943. We have not had a competent national Republican leader, not ever. We had some guys who were too embarrassing, but what's the primary purpose of a political leader above anything else in this system? It's to build a majority capable of sustaining itself because if we don't do that, we don't make the laws, we don't write the taxes, we don't decide how to start a war, we don't keep the country strong. And, and he goes on from there. This is Gingrich running as a Republican in 1978.
0: <laughs> and and one thing to mention, you know, Newt Gingrich, when he first came to Congress, he was one of the first people to take advantage of this brand new service or technology <laughs> that, that had been just been unveiled, C-SPAN. Um, you know, all these all these technology or cable companies came together to sponsor. You know, they're they're going to put cameras first of all only on the House floor, and Newt was one of the first people to see the value in that. Whereas a total freshman, or maybe he was a sophomore, a complete backbencher, the value of going on to the Senate or the House floor at maybe nine o'clock p.m. the chamber is empty, and just pontificating, talking about whatever he wants. But he realized I can connect to all sorts of conservatives, not even just in my district, but around the country.
1: It was, they were, were, these were special orders, which members of the house could could request uh, speech time to speak from the well when the house isn't in session. And Joe tomorrow's, it's wonderful. She points that out because of course, initially it was a tight shot of the speaker, uh, whoever he would be, he or she was in the well. We didn't see the rest of the chamber,
2: but that was changed, wasn't it? Yeah well I I mean it's changed before you can see more who's in the in the speaker well it, yeah you may know he got, into, it, he know got the, into
0: a huge fight with yeah. Tip O'Neill because Tip got really annoyed at all these speeches <laughs> right. where he slammed whatever the democrats were doing and at some point you know so so the cameras are C-SPAN's cameras but they're actually controlled by the house yeah. Yeah, by yeah, by yeah, the house right. leaders and so he got the cameras to pan out and show the empty chamber yeah <laughs> he wasn't and, talking to anyone
2: well, yeah. and the other thing that Gingrich is doing is you you know, C-SPAN is a, is a product of the of cable news, right? And so the what cable news creates the twenty four hour news cycle, and so he's he's also very adept at manipulating the, the media, and you know he talks. There's a famous quote of his about how the media responds to conflict, you know. And so you know when you when you create conflict, you're going to draw the eyes of of. Folks like you guys, you're right? And they're gonna they're gonna put microphones in front of his face, and he's gonna be able to shape the narrative. And, and that's what he does. He does that. Uses C-SPAN, but he also uses. Cable uh, media too, and
0: in a big moment, there was a face-off fairly early after that. You know where where he did face off against Tip O'Neill. He he had said he was criticizing. I can't remember some Democratic. There there was some sort of letter writing between some Democrats in Congress and the government of Nicaragua or some kind of banana republic sort of <laughs> regime, and um, you know Tip O'Neill was so furious he came onto the House floor and he said some not nice things about Newt Gingrich and Newt realizing that that he can get media to cover him if there's conflict, he goes, I'm going to strike the last word of the speaker. I'm going to go toe to toe with him. And guess what? He won in that procedural batter, battle in a, in a weird bit of uh, history 40 years later or whatever that was. Doug Collins did the same thing on the House floor recently with Nancy Pelosi. That's exactly
1: right. Uh, it is important to point out that in 1978, 79, 80, whatever, Newt Gingrich was a minority party back venture. It it seems to me, Joe, that the last thing you want to do is uh, if you have a choice, <laughs> is go up to Congress, be a member of the House, in the minority party, and be a relatively unimportant uh, member of your party in those days. And Gingrich learned how to capitalize on it. And one of the ways he did it was by continuing to promote harsher and harsher rhetoric toward Democrats.
2: And one of his breakthrough moments is to the role he played in the removal of Jim Wright as Speaker of the House. And there's a great new book you've got to have uh, by a friend of mine who teaches at Princeton, okay. Julian Zelzer. You've got to have him on his show. When the book right. comes out in the spring, but it's going to be a, it's going to be an important new book that that gets that that kind of looks at a key moment for uh, for his uh, emergence here.
0: Yeah, and and Gingrich instituted a, a whole multi, or multitude of changes that that really did kind of change the climate up there. Not only are you expected to be in D.C. less to to trash talk the other party, there's also you take away ter, or you sorry you add term limits for committee chairs. You central you know so so not only that you're getting people who who don't have as much expertise in those roles. He w- ended up concentrating a lot more power in the this leadership. is once he
1: became speaker. once he became speaker.
0: Right. Make more of the decisions among him and his staff, less decentralized, not only that, but but over time, and we can talk about this in a minute, all these Supreme Court decisions on fundraising that, that kind of raised the open the floodgates, but more and more demand to, to do that. So when you are in Washington, you're constantly raising funds rather am, than legislating.
1: L- let's do this. Um, let's get our final break of the show out of the way, because when we come back, I do want to spend a little time. We'll catch up to the later uh, uh, years of the partisan battles, but I do want to talk about Pat Buchanan's seminal speech at the 1992 Republican Convention in Houston. We'll do that after this break.
3: My name is Dana Brown. I am the program manager at the Georgia Adoption Reunion Registry. Our goal is to help persons impacted by adoption experience healthy reconnections to impact healthy well-being. We underwrite with GPB because of your extensive listening audience that covers the state of Georgia. It's an effective way to get the word out about what we do across the state of Georgia. To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship
0: at gpb.org. the next fresh air, journalist Ronan Farrow. His investigation into Harvey Weinstein's predatory behavior, published in The New Yorker, won a Pulitzer Prize. In his new book, Farrow reports on how Weinstein and Farrow's former employer, NBC, tried to prevent Farrow from publishing or broadcasting the story. Farrow also reports a new allegation against Matt Lauer. Join us. Fresh air coming up this afternoon at three right here on GPB
3: and online at gpbnews.org.
1: Couple of quick uh, updates on impeachment stories before we continue with our conversation. Uh, House Democratic leaders are everybody's back on the hill today, and House Democratic leaders are now starting to take the temperature of their caucus as to whether the party should stage a floor vote to launch. An official impeachment inquiry, which they haven't done, and which the administration has tried to use against them. uh, Exactly.
0: And so far, you've seen from a lot of the Republican defenders of Trump on Capitol Hill, less about whether Trump actually did a lot of these (laughs) things when it comes to Ukraine. But they were really fighting the Democrats on procedural grounds. You're not following the typical procedure. At the same time, Democrats, Pelosi, when she came to the AJC about two weeks ago, mentioned that the Constitution is pretty vague about requirements. And it really is up to the discretion of the speaker, she argues, in in terms of whether they have a floor vote or not.
1: Another quick uh, uh, note. Here's a surprise, Joe. Rudy Giuliani has said that he will not comply with subpoenas to uh, either give documents or testify in front of the uh, committees that are investigating all this.
2: I'm shocked.
1: (laughs) All right. I want to go to 1992 because, Joe, you and I, in talking about uh, this show, talked about what an important moment this was for Republicans and what it did to the landscape of, of American politics. 1992, uh, we're in Houston because it's basically George H.W. Bush's hometown. It's his convention because he's running for re-election, but he's fought a v- vicious primary fight. He's he's fought off a vicious fight by Pat Buchanan, who beats him in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. but then cannot win the nomination. And because Buchanan has done so well, he is given a prime spot on the program. And he makes a speech that has become infamous to this day. I want to listen. We're going to listen to a couple minutes of it because it was such an important moment. And then talk about it.
4: What a terrific crowd this is. What a terrific crowd. This may even be larger than the crowd I had in Ella Georgia. Don't laugh. We carried Ella <laughs> like many of you last month I watched that giant masquerade ball up at Madison Square Garden where 20,000 liberals and radicals came dressed up as moderates and centrists in the greatest single exhibition of cross-dressing in American political history George Bush is a defender of right to life and a champion of the Judeo-Christian values and beliefs upon which America was founded. (laughs) Mr. Clinton, Mr. Clinton, however, has a different agenda. At its top is unrestricted, unrestricted abortion on demand. Yet a militant leader of the homosexual rights movement could rise at that same convention and say, Bill Clinton and Al Gore represent the most pro-lesbian and pro-gay ticket in history, and so they do. Friends, this election is about more than who gets what. It is about who we are. It is about what we believe and what we stand for as Americans. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war as critical to the kind of nation we shall be as the Cold War itself. For this war is for the soul of America. And in that struggle for the soul of America, Clinton and Clinton are on the other side and George Bush is on our side.
1: Pat Buchanan at the 1992 Republican Convention in Houston. Joe and Tamara, I do have to tell you something. I listened to that speech again uh, early this morning, and (laughs) what was interesting to me about it was that I was in the Cox TV booth the night of that speech in Houston, and sitting there watching it down there on the floor, we, we were kind of all, had our mouths hanging open. We were so shocked by the language Buchanan was using in this speech, as were many people in the hall, even Republicans who supported maybe particularly Republicans who supported George H.W. Bush. When I listened to it this morning, I thought, well, kind of the way we're all talking these With days. With the exception <laughs> of, of him saying
0: pro-lesbian and pro-gay, yeah. it's shockingly yeah. similar. When you talk about abortions on demand, you hear Republicans now talking about Democrats wanting late-term abortions and it's okay, you know, infanticide would be okay under the Democratic regime regime very much our side versus theirs the exact kind of rhetoric you hear now
2: but it was shocking shocking it was shocking for republicans yeah. you know and the classic quote about it was from Molly Ivins the the Texas political reporter she said she liked it better than the original german <laughs> oh, yeah. and but yeah but that's that's right that there it was it's it's, it's a measure of how of how you know coarsened we've become um, to, to think about, you know, how, how upsetting this was, this speech was to so many people, not just on the left, but, but people within the Republican Party. And George Bush says that that's what caused him to lose the election. Yeah. That, that speech is the thing that, you know, that, that, that really hurt, hurt him in the general election against, um, against Bill Clinton.
1: Um, you want to know how resonant that moment was and is in our politics today? Here's Newt Gingrich on Fox News talking about the impeachment investigation that's underway right now.
4: We are as close to a cultural civil war uh, as we have been since uh, the 1860s. You have people very deeply divided. Uh, they have literally live in two different realities. Uh, and I think that you have sort of the pro-impeachment left desperate to get to Trump, uh, led by the New York Times and the Washington Post. And then the major networks, then you have millions of people for whom Trump is the first president uh, to really stand up for what they think their values are.
1: So I don't know that I heard any conversation before Buchanan in 92 about the cultural war. I'm sure it was out there in some places maybe among the birchers, for instance, but uh, it, it, but Buchanan put it in the in the in the dialogue, and it's still there today.
2: Yeah, that's that's it's the early nineties that we we you know that historians talk about that term coming into common usage, and, um, and 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 you know Buchanan was one of the obviously he 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 invokes it there. He also importantly we you know we couldn't listen to the whole thing, but there's a really dark passage at the end where he talks about the ninety two. Uh, uh, riots, riots in, in Los, Los Angeles. Angeles. That's right, and and um, it, it's a it's a very ominous uh, close to that. You know, you can anybody can go and listen to that speech. It's on YouTube, and they should go and listen to the whole thing because it's the whole thing is pretty is a it's a, it's a fascinating and disturbing historical document.
0: Yeah, and you see it. I mean, thinking I can't remember. Well, it must have been both. Trump's speech at the Republican convention in 16 and again his inaugural inaugural address took on similar ominous tones you know we're on the the nation is on the precipice of something bad and I'm going to be the one to to right the ship and yeah. you know as as a millennial who who frankly was hearing that that Nixon speech and the Buchanan speech for the first time the Nixon one was so much more jarring for me it's I you know in this climate being on Capitol Hill hearing the sorts of language that Buchanan used that's pretty, that's that's a Tuesday for me. <laughs> Hearing the Nixon stuff, yeah. you know, I feel, I, you know, nothing against I you. I am
1: so you, glad we were able to contribute to your political education <laughs> today. You tomorrow. could argue,
2: though, that it's this speech, or certainly it's this wing of the Republican Party that leads George W. Bush to create kind of compassionate conservatism, which is kind of a, a hallmark of his uh, presidency. And it was in response to this wing, this kind of culture war wing. Then what happened? Well, George W. Bush uh, serves two terms, but George W. Bush, you know, in retrospect, seems like a very uh, moderate candidate. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you know, George W. Bush also puts in place a an a, 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 a immigration reform bill that you know is 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 struck down by the right wing of the party. So, so you know, there was a lot of reaction against. Um, against Bush, too, that we forget about.
1: We are, unfortunately, running short of time. But I do want to try one other thing here, Joe, with the little time we have remaining. And that's this. We focused an awful lot on how political elected officials, political leaders have enhanced partisanship or built up this uh, partisanship that that paralyzes us today. But we haven't talked about the responsibility that those of us as citizens have in all of this. And my example of that is what we call the big sort. And and that has to do with how we as people now live our lives, doesn't it?
2: Yeah. Well, the, the big Sword is a is a book written by a journalist that's yeah. that's kind of consolidating a lot of um, of social scientific research that shows that. Uh, people do live, we live in our bubbles, you know, not only online, but actually in our physical neighborhoods. And part of this is a consequence of rising educational levels that that have happened since the World War II. You have so many more people who are going to four-year colleges, getting higher degrees. You would think that when you get more education, you become more broad-minded, but actually that's not what happens. You get more education and you become more kind of secure in your own view of the world. And so with education, education also creates opportunities for mobility, and people are more likely to move different places to get jobs and go for jobs. And so people are moving, they're more mobile, they're moving into areas where people see the world like they do, you know, so that we see, you know, we, we see it right here in Atlanta. You know, I live in Decatur, right? It's hard to find Republicans in Decatur, yeah. but it's also hard to find, you know, any Democrats in a lot of those Northern Arc suburbs. So uh, that's, we, you know, it's part of our everyday reality. Tom
1: Faust, we had a post, this is, um, we're talking about Paul Taylor, who used to be a correspondent, was their lead political correspondent. I used to travel with Paul in uh, earlier presidential races, went to the Pew Center uh, for Research and wrote this piece on the demographic trends that are shaping American politics back in 2016, and it's still relevant today. So if we can post that, that'd be great, because I think people would be really interested in uh, reading what Paul had to say. Uh, tomorrow he talks about it, not just in terms of neighborhoods we live in, but uh, the graying of America, which represents one part of who we are. Uh, the more the growing non uh, uh, non-majority population, the minority population uh, that's growing, and any number of other factors which are contributing to us as citizens becoming more divided
0: exactly millennials becoming now the the bigger voting share the bigger share of the workforce and all of a sudden our boomer parents are starting to retire and don't like the way things are looking
1: yeah well, I, God, this is such an interesting discussion. I wish we could keep talking about it. But unfortunately, we have to get out of the way so that Terry Gross and Fresh Air uh, can step step in. But it's really been terrific. Tamar Hallerman, thank you for being here. And I'm very excited about the fact that you're going to be moving to Atlanta. And we hope to have you in our studios talking with us as often as we can do that. Definitely. Thanks. And uh, Joe Crespino, uh, really fun uh, talking with you. You and I have discussed the fact... That that. You know, every month, six weeks, whatever, we're going to look for ways in which we can take what's happening today and put it in historical context. This is a great example of why that's a worthwhile thing to do. We'd
2: love to do it, Bill, anytime. Thanks
1: a lot, Joe. Thank you all for listening to the show today. I'm Bill Nigat. We're back tomorrow. Of course, we'll be talking about the Democratic uh, debate. Darren Johnson will be here, Dr. Andra Gillespie, Heath Garrett. uh, They're going to have a lot to say about the debate. We're also going to look at the financial statements of major candidates for office. In Georgia, all that and more on Tomorrow's Show at two.